Hello, everyone, and such a warm welcome to all of you. I'm Molly Rowan Leach, and this is Restorative Justice on the Rise, a public dialogue series founded in 2011 to honor the need for us to connect and discuss solutions to our broken criminal justice system. And that, of course, includes people who have been heavily impacted by violent and serious crimes such as our very special and honored guest tonight, whom I'm looking forward to introducing to you in just a quick moment here. Um, first and foremost, though, tonight, I'd like to start out with our public dialogue with Eric um, in honor of his brother, Matt, who whose life was a torch and inspiration to many, many, many people, countless, hundreds, and upon hundreds of people in his immediate community in Indiana, which was Terre Haute, as well as those that he reached through his blessed for another day work and his positivity. And it was contagious, as you probably read in the introductory email and invite for tonight's session. Matt Luking was an inspiration through his radio work, through every single moment of his life, and it was snuffed out in a very horrific manner four years ago. And of course, uh, we have Eric Luking, his brother, here with us tonight. And I've really enjoyed getting to know Eric and listening to his story and his process and um, excited to have him share that with everyone tonight. And we'll we'll be opening up throughout today's session, as we always do with our dialogues, to invite questions. And if you've never been in with us here, please feel free to use the Q&A tab to, you, uh, to submit a comment or to ask a question. And you can do that by going onto the webcast page that was provided. Looks like some of you are already in the webcast. Go ahead and click on that Q&A and you can also do um, a chat with one another while you're here tonight in the chat room. That is just on the right-hand side of the page. I'd also like to mention in relationship to our conversation tonight with Eric, last year we had the privilege of hosting in um, partnership with Reform Alliance, CNN, and Van Jones, the Redemption Project discussion series, which featured the family members and people impacted by very violent crime. And that was an honor to host and to hear people's stories of how they came to the decision of meeting, eventually meeting in person with the people in many cases who had murdered their loved one. Those recordings from that discussion series are free and open to the public. Uh, they've also been adopted by CNN in some parts for Van Jones's incarceration and mass incarceration uh, podcast relating to the Redemption Project, which if you're curious as to where to find the recordings from that discussion series, you can go to restorativejusticeontherise.org and then backslash discussion dash series. You'll note that in all of our email communications with you, there's also links to that page directly. And we hope that those are useful and insightful, um, very difficult conversations, and also very inspiring. So once again, if you're just joining us, welcome. And wanting to honor Matt, the life of Matt Luking tonight, we have Eric Luking, his brother, with us. And we're going to be talking about uh, the need for restorative justice and his experience as the younger brother of a life that was snuffed out way too soon. I'd like to just share a little bit for those of you who may not have had a, a chance to see a bit about um, Eric's work. He continues to spread Matt's contagious positivity and he's a speaker, writer, and advocate for forgiveness, personal healing, and avenues for restorative justice. Since his brother's murder in 2016, 
He has been on a journey of self-reflection and finding his place again in the world, constantly looking at new ways to approach the hardships that life can bring. By openly sharing his story, he has found a way to rechannel his love for Matt, to positively influence friends, family, and anyone else who will listen. Through speaking events at many venues, including universities, churches, and podcasts such as this one, he tells a powerful story about how forgiveness has given him the freedom to move forward and cut any ties that would bind him to self-defeat. He's also collaborated with respected restorative justice practitioner and Michigan State University professor Derek Frank, who was featured on that discussion series and in CNN's Redemption Series, um, excuse me, Redemption Project with Van Jones. He was a facilitator for uh, another family. Their collaborative work has included a lecture and discussion on victim-offender dialogue implementation steps in states in the U.S. And Eric is also available to speak via the web or at your community center or campus by contacting him via his website, which is blessed for another day and that's blessed for another day.com it's also linked on the webcast page at the upper right hand corner where you can also pick up a wonderful bfad or blessed for another day t-shirt so without further ado tonight's of course topic is the need for restorative justice and from a very unique perspective thank you so much eric for joining us welcome Thank you, Molly. I really appreciate you having me on. I have certainly enjoyed getting to know you over the last uh, couple months, and in the conversations we've had, we've—I feel like we've touched on a lot of a lot of uh, material and, and ideas. And um, in addition to your introduction, when you talked about Q and A, I just want to let anyone know who's listening, um, and, and I say this at, at any talk that I ever give. Um, I'm here to answer whatever questions that you may have about Matt's case or what my mindset has been. Um, so don't feel like anything is, is too personal to ask. Um, you know, don't feel like you need to censor yourself like, oh, that, that might be asking, you know, too much or something too personal. So that, that's the only rule I have is there are no rules. Thank you so much, Eric. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to start out with a story about Matt and, of course, that guiding principle, um, the acronym being BFAD or Blessed for Another Day. Um, Matt was just – and people, I guess, would expect me to say that as my brother, like, you know, Matt was wonderful and, and, and he was, but – I mean, truly, if you asked anyone who met Matt or had heard of Matt, um, you would hear nothing but, but positive things about him. Um, he was always trying to to help um, build up things in his community, uh, whether it was he was complaining to local government about um, needing more opportunities in the community for youth, um, they had closed the community pool, and he felt very strongly that that pool should not have been closed. You know, what are kids supposed to be doing here in town? Um, a, just to be kids, but B, to, to give them things to do so that they weren't doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Um, one story I learned after Matt had passed that just really um, took me back was, and I'll get in more of the details later about, um, uh, specifically about his case, but as it turned out, uh, the, the gentleman who had orchestrated, um, having, having a couple of people break into Matt's apartment and, and eventually, um, killing him, um, that, that man was the ex-boyfriend of the girl that Matt was dating at the time he was killed. And, uh, when, when uh, I think it was early on in their relationship, uh, this this man, his name was Don, uh, came and knocked on his girlfriend's door, and said, "Hey, I I need to get some money back from you, and uh, uh, 
you know, when we were dating, we would drive all over town to, you know, go out to eat or, or whatever, just normal things that people do while they date. And for whatever reason, he felt like he was owed something back for that. And so she went back in the house and into her house and, um, he, Don was, was still outside on the front porch, not knowing that Matt was actually there at her house with her. And, uh, so she's telling Matt, you know, what's going on, who was at the door and, and what he wanted. And Matt pulled money out of his wallet and said, here, just go ahead and give this to him just to get him to go away. And so that's what she did. She, uh, took the money that Matt pulled out of his wallet and gave it to Don and, off he went, and uh, a year or whatever it was later, um, he was a big reason why Matt was was killed in his sleep. And I think that just goes to show the spirit of who Matt was um, really well, that, um, you know, here's this ex-boyfriend outside, and, you know, it wasn't like, hey, I'm going to go out there and get in a confrontation with him. It was just, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. Here's a little bit of money. Let him have it and be on his way. And let's enjoy the rest of our time together kind of thing. So it's been four years now, Eric, since that horrific day. And I'm wondering, I know that you shared with me you had some some initial feelings and thoughts just after you learned what had happened. I believe it was the next morning or I can't remember the story exactly, but would you be willing to share a bit about where you were at immediately after learning of your brother's death? So it's been uh, not quite three and a half years. It was October 24th, 2016. And I was actually at work, um, and I had gotten a a text, or, or it might have been a phone call from a mutual friend of Matt's and mine, just saying, you know, hey, have you have you talked to your brother today? And I said, no, I, I talked to him yesterday during the Colts football game, um, and you know, we just sort of caught up with one another, like we we did pretty regularly, and you know, nothing was out of the ordinary. And I'm like, why? And he goes, oh, well, nobody's heard from your brother this morning. And this was probably mid-morning, maybe 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that. And he said, well, he didn't show up to work. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's pretty odd if if he didn't, you know, let someone know ahead of time that I'm not going to be, you know, on time. I've got to run this errand or had car trouble, whatever the, the reason. And as I got to calling around to more people, including my mom and some other mutual friends, you know, the story rang the same. It was, nope, hadn't heard from him today. And um, uh, I, I then reached out to another friend who, who lived in Terre Haute, um, and, and he said that he was uh, out at Matt's apartment complex, um, and he said there were just all sorts of police officials uh, around, and he just didn't have a good feeling about it. So I said, well, go ahead and put me on the line with one of them. And I got on the phone with a Detective Lewis, and he didn't really provide me a whole lot of information at that point, just that, you know, yeah, we're, you know, we're out here at, at your brother's apartment complex, and, you know, we're we're trying to figure out what's going on. And so I said, well, do I need to come down? And he said, yeah, why don't you go ahead and do that? And it was about an hour, hour and a half drive for me to get down there. And so I let the people at work know real quick that, you know, hey, I have to leave, like, right now. Uh, nobody's heard from my brother today. Something seems really fishy. And they're like, yeah, go ahead and do what you what you need to do. Um, and so anyway, as I'm driving down, I've got a hundred thoughts running through my head and none of them end in a good place. But I just keep trying to hope that, you know, hey, there's just some misunderstanding. And as I get on the scene uh, at, at his apartment complex, there's still a ton of police there. And I get out of my car, and I go to find Detective Lewis uh, to let him know that I was there and, you know, see what what help I can be. Because at this point, nothing's been told to me like, oh, yeah, we found him or anything. I'm expecting like, oh, we're going to 
get a search party together or something and go around town looking for him. Um, but Detective Lewis pulls me off to the side, and we're standing in a little grassy area next to his building. And uh, he said, this is the hardest news I've ever had to tell anyone. Um, we found your brother, and he's uh, he's in his bed upstairs, and he's he's dead, and we suspect foul play. And he goes on to tell me that we don't really have any leads at this time, but, you know, we're going to work this case. Uh, you know, very hard, very, very diligently, and we're going to, you know, find who did this. And um, so I'm just there, just kind of like, what? Like, this just didn't seem real. You know, if, if you would have told me that, uh, and my so my brother was 44 when, when he was killed. If you would have told me he died at 44, and it was due to a health issue or a car crash or something like that. Yeah, I could I could believe that. But you know, for there to be foul play involved uh, in 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 his passing, it just and for it to be murder just never would have occurred to me or anyone who knew him at all. Um, and so, uh, one of my first reactions to this. And, and I was talking to I – I actually gave a presentation yesterday at, at uh, Indiana State, which is a campus where Matt went to school in Terre Haute, um, and, and I gave a, a presentation to some criminology students yesterday uh, with the lead prosecutor – or the chief deputy prosecutor and the lead detective of the case and me just sort of talking about how, how all these pieces interrelate um, to solve a case. But anyway, one of the one of the side conversations we had before we got on stage was about something I said to this detective. So Matt, he uh, he had been in radio as a full time job for a while, and at the time of his passing, he wasn't working in radio full time. Uh, he was he was working at a bank, but he had also run a mobile DJ business, doing uh, wedding receptions and birthday parties and. You know anything that anybody needed music for. He had run his own business for uh, a little over 25 years, and so one of the first things I say to this detective was, "I need you to do me a favor. While you're in his apartment, I need you to look at his desk to see if there are any notes about any upcoming weddings that he might be DJing over the next couple of weeks, because in his 25 years of running his business." He never missed a, a dance at all due to sickness or even if he wasn't feeling well. He he made sure that that he was there for, for the people who had hired him. And I said, and I'll be damned if it's going to start now. I will find someone to fill in for those dates for him if he, uh, since he won't be able to make it and if, if, if he does indeed have, have some things booked. And uh, lo and behold, they ended up finding a couple things and, and gave me some phone numbers, and, and I reached out to some, some DJ friends of his who uh, graciously covered for him. Um, but beyond that, the conversation with the detective didn't last very long. I knew that he needed to get back to work um, because, again, they didn't really have any leads as to who or why at that point. And so I went back to my car. I, there was nobody else on the scene who I knew. Uh, my mom and my aunt had not yet arrived. They were they were in transit. And so the only thing I needed to do was to go back to my car, and I prayed. And I prayed for first for Matt and the journey that he was on at that point. I prayed for our friends and family who were going to be finding out this awful news of what happened to Matt. And finally, I prayed for the person or people who were responsible for Matt's death, even though I had no idea who or why. And the only only reason uh, or explanation I can give was it was just divine intervention. That was just a gift given to me to have that perspective that mm-hmm. it was something I needed to do to pray for all those people. Mm. Wow. 
very powerful, Eric. And and that was within the first that, um, few minutes of go ahead of me. And yeah. I was just saying that was just within the first few minutes of me being told that that he had been killed and foul play was suspected. And ever since that moment, it it seems from my perspective, and I know from other people who have worked with you that you really have carried on your brother's spirit of service. And I'd, I'd like to, given that we have such a short hour together tonight, if you don't mind, take a short turn into the aspect of victim offender dialogue processes and restorative justice. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel c- complete with this segment of getting people a little bit more perspective of what you've been through and this um, unthinkable loss that your family has been through and, of course, honoring Matt and his life. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about, you know, what my thoughts are about learning about restorative justice and how I Great. think it can be beneficial. So so one of the things that I'd like to just share um, to go into this segment of our conversation tonight is that that victim offender dialogue or VOD is often also called HRVOD, which is high risk victim offender dialogue, meaning it's involving very violent cases. Oftentimes the um, offenders are in prison and just kind of curious um, for those of you that are with us live tonight, would you please press um, star two if you are familiar with VOD process. How many of us on the line tonight in the room are familiar with victim offender dialogue process and what that means and entails? Go ahead and press star two to raise your hand. Okay, about uh, looks like 20% of you are raising your hand tonight. So that's a good a good place to start then Eric isn't it we can um we can share a bit about what the what your first moment was in finding out about a victim offender dialogue possibility um what it entails why you're interested in it and why you think it's beneficial for people who have suffered through um such violence and and harm and as a precursor really quickly just to give some discernment here, restorative justice is not uh, a synonym for forgiveness. Just wanting people to know that tonight, that we're not here talking about restorative justice saying that it's a means to an end, meaning that it's a means towards forgiveness. Forgiveness is often cultivated through that the process, the conditions are safe, and they honor victims' needs first and foremost. So um, there's a lot of stuff going on in American culture, in the narrative, that restorative justice, you know, is weak or that it doesn't honor victims' needs. And a lot of those things are just, you know, not true. But it's hard to know that unless you know what this really is. And it certainly is not about directing you towards forgiveness. So... Maybe that's a good place to start, um, Eric, because I know you have a lot to say about restorative justice and maybe your first experience of it and how you see it um, in relationship to forgiveness. Okay. So first and foremost, I've not actually been through a formal restorative justice um, process or I've, I've not done any victim offender dialogues with any of the offenders uh, in Matt's case. I mean, I, I had the opportunity to read uh, impact victim impact statements in the sentencing hearings of all the offenders. There were um, four total offenders, but three were people who broke into his apartment. Um, the, the fourth person got involved after the fact, but nonetheless, I read a victim impact statement there. Uh, at, at that gentleman's hearing as well. Um, but also, as a bit of a side tangent, as as we were, as, as I was working with the chief deputy prosecutor during the criminal justice portion of all this, 
and we were talking about ideas of, you know, at that point we still didn't know is it going are, are these offenders will they go to trial or will we do plea agreements with them? And um, so when we were having some conversation about plea agreements, I said, hey, I've got a few ideas that I'm wondering if we might be able to incorporate into a plea agreement. Um, things like, uh, you know, maybe having them meet with me once a year or having them somehow learn more about who Matt was and why it was such a loss for him to not be alive anymore. Um, you know, I even thought about, well, some of the offenders, they, they had had a number of drug charges against them uh, in the past, and I thought, um, well, what if what if we could do a talk in a school, if they could get out of, you know, release from, not release, but, you know, uh, come to a school and stand alongside me during the day talking about, you know, what happened with Matt in his case, what ended up, what what these people ended up doing to Matt and how drugs may have potentially played a part in the process um, and, 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 you know, as a case study of, you know, this is what can happen when you get involved with the wrong things or with the wrong people. It can really take you down a dark path and have you do some really dark things. Um, but as I was having those conversations with the chief deputy prosecutor, he said, I, I like your ideas. However, we don't have a way to legally enforce those. And so it's not really anything that that we can actually put, you know, language in a plea agreement about, you know, using using those ideas and implementing them. And I didn't argue with him about it. I was like, okay, I mean, if those are, you know, quote unquote, the rules, then then so be it. I just I wanted to throw it out there. Um, and then it was probably April or May of 2019 when there was a piece on 60 Minutes uh, with Jonathan Shar from uh, the University of Wisconsin, and it talked about restorative justice and as I was hearing him him talk the things that he was saying were and the ideas that I had had were very similar to one another and I just never knew that there was this theory behind uh, behind those kind of ideas called restorative justice and it was about a, I don't know, a month or two later when the CNN series of the Redemption Project first aired, uh, and, and I had seen a, a trailer for it, and I'm like, oh, well, I, I definitely need to watch that. And, and, you know, I, that was, that was must watch TV for me when, when those episodes aired, and it just kind of brought a greater understanding to me to see how, how, um, coming together and, and working through a process with a facilitator and then eventually meeting, you know, face-to-face, the kind of impact that that could have on both sides of the crime. Um, And then uh, one other thing, going back to the victim impact statements, um, I wrote wrote pretty lengthy and pretty detailed impact statements. I think my wife told me, I was on the stand for an hour at each of the impact statements, or reading each of the impact statements at the hearings. And one thing that I, and again, this was before I ever even knew that restorative justice was a thing. Um, while I certainly had things to say on my behalf of why, uh, you know, why Matt was so important to me, um, the thing something else that I wanted to make sure was put into those victim impact statements um, were about what other people had told me about Matt. And, uh, you know, after Matt was killed, there were so many people that uh, were writing all these nice things about Matt or sharing these stories about, well, this one time with Matt, I remember when, dot, 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 or the thing I remember about, about Matt was this. And um, over the course of reading those in that year-and-a-half-long process of, of with the criminal justice system, 
um, there were, you know, a handful of stories that really just resonated with me of, you know, sometimes it was things that I knew about Matt and other times there were stories that I heard about Matt that I, I didn't know at all. And I thought, how cool is that to hear that about him? Um, and so I reached out to those people and I said, hey, I'm I'm writing this victim impact statement and I'm wondering if I can include the story that you shared about Matt last year or whenever it was that they had posted it online. And um, everyone said, yeah, I would I would love for you to do that. I, I, I would be more than happy for you to share that story about Matt. And so in doing that, it was framing it as a community loss. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. just Matt mm-hmm. was my brother or Matt was his friend or her friend or coworker or whatever. It really was framing it as a community loss. And, and a lot of what restorative justice talks about is about broken relationships either uh, personally or within a community. And, um, you know, again, as, I, as I've as i learned more about restorative justice, like it just, it, it still kind of boggles my mind that like even though I didn't know this, this theory existed, that like my, my ideas were very congruent with that. And so it was, um, I don't know what the right word is off the top of my head, you know, it was, uh, reaffirming or, uh, you know, heartwarming to know that I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't crazy, like, to, to have these thoughts of, of, you know, and, and again, I know we talked about how forgiveness isn't, uh, the same thing as, as what restorative justice, uh, is for, but that these emotions that I was having and the di- kind of dialogue that I wanted to have, like I, I, I shouldn't be locked up in the loony bin for it. Um, that there were other people out there who thought like I did. Hmm. Thank you so much, Eric, for sharing with all of us tonight. And for those of you that are just joining us, we're with Eric Luking, whose brother, uh, big brother Matt, was murdered in 2016, and he's been advocating for victim offender dialogue. Um, as a possibility in states such as Indiana, where there are, as you probably, if you've been with us this whole time, are hearing that at the current moment, there are not any existing victim offender dialogue programs, but in the United States, there is a rise of them. And where I'm sitting right now here in Colorado, we have a very active um, couple programs, and the evidence is pointing um, not just in those programs here in the United States um, that that are popping up, but uh, from others in our world that apparently the more violent the crime, the more useful and respectful, to, especially to the victim or victims and their needs, um, that that increases and the ability for them to be heard and their safety and their needs to be respected and carried through. Um, we're talking about a process here that, as Eric was touching on, is not just, oh, let's all jump in a room together um, immediately. That's by no means what, what this is. For those of you who might be curious about what VOD is still, um, that it's actually a very lengthy process that involves separate meetings with stakeholders. And it includes deep listening and protection of the victim's needs. And sometimes it even results in simply finding other ways to have a conversation with, you know, between offender and victim. It doesn't necessarily result in a direct meeting. Although if, for those of you who saw the Redemption Project or the videos um, such as the one with Jonathan Scherer from the University of Wisconsin, there's there's something to being in that same room with the people who have been involved in a life-altering, a life-destroying even event. And there's um, a sense of, of relief that comes from doing that. Um, but Eric, I want to hand the mic back to you since this is, uh, you know, 
really um, your time to share with us your perspective. What what are your thoughts on um, how what what is missing in the the punitive justice route that um, you think that restorative justice can better accomplish for for people like yourself and for you know for all involved. And I think you pointed to it just a moment ago in talking about the context of a life and community impact. But I'd love I'd love to to go into that with you right now. And remember, those of you that are here with us, Q&A tab, submit questions if you'd like. We'd love to hear from you tonight. If you'd like to get involved in this conversation, please feel warmly welcome to do so. Well, first and foremost, uh, with with my specific involvement uh, regarding Matt's case with the criminal justice system, um, with the the police force in Terre Haute, and uh, the prosecutor's office, and even the the crime victim assistance program there, I had a good experience with them. I I, I had a very good working relationship with them. Like we were all under the understanding that. You know, we, you know, we wanted to get justice for Matt. Um, I mean, those guys worked their tails off. Uh, those those men and women all worked their tails off. You know, with the, uh, as I explained at the beginning, they had no idea and no motive as to why Matt was killed. But within and within 24 hours, they had two people in custody. And I think it was the next day they arrested the third and were on the trail of the fourth. I mean, that's how quickly that that the police were able to get this thing resolved, um, both from the county Matt lived in and in the surrounding county, some things that had happened uh, after they the, the offenders had stolen Matt's credit card and, and ID. Um, they all worked together uh great the the police force did and and again with the prosecutor's office i had a very good relationship with them um they were very good asking us about what we wanted to see based on the charges that they could prove uh and and the the sentences that could be imposed from those charges they asked us what at a minimum for each defendant you know, with these lists of charges by defendant, what would you like to see at the minimum? So they were very, um, you know, they they very much wanted to hear our thoughts on the matter. Um, but when it when it comes to, um, you know, as I was speaking about earlier with with when I had some ideas of well, can we maybe put this in a plea agreement? There's just not a a formal process in the state of Indiana to make that happen. Um, right. You know, I I would like the opportunity to speak with with the people involved, assuming that everybody, you know, through a facilitation process, you know, quote unquote, passes those, you know, those those tests or whatever you want to call them in place. Um, you know, I, I'd like to, I guess, hear them take some accountability, or not some, but full accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to know that uh, hopefully that they are, uh, even though they're incarcerated, that they're growing as people um, and becoming better people um, than when they first went in uh, to, to be incarcerated. You know, I, I'd like to, you know, I guess in a perfect world here that, you know they've they've had that light bulb go off and think, you know I can I can do better with my life, and and maybe they've met another inmate or more than one who who they can, you know ex- share their story with and 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 uh, take people under their wings to to help them become better people too. I mean, um, you know in the criminal justice system, that's just not really a focus. It's you broke a law, there's a punishment for doing that, and now you have to go away if you're found guilty. Um, There's nothing really in place that says, uh, you know, hey, if you would like, and if the, you know, the victim or the surviving family members of a victim would like, 
Um, we can put you through this process to determine if you can meet at some point or come to some understanding of, of how you can, uh, you know, focus on, on this relationship that was broken. Um, you know, that's where I think the criminal justice system. And to express you know, the it, impact that you, you and your beloved family members have suffered. Um, and his friends. I, sorry, to, sorry to interject, but I wanted to make sure that everybody is clear that um, most restorative justice practitioners, myself included, I am, of course, the host of this dialogue series, but I also happen to be a facilitator. We res have so much respect for the officials within the systems that we work with um, and what they represent. So, for example, as Eric was saying, you know, the DA and the the staff um, that was prosecuting, um, these are wonderful people who are very devoted to the truth and to justice and to doing the right thing. So by no means does restorative justice mean that punitive justice, as I called it, is wrong per se. It's just a different way of going about justice that doesn't necessarily meet the needs of all the people impacted with the victim's needs leading that process and their safety um, being upheld first and foremost. Um, so I just wanted to, to make sure to clarify that. But um, as far as, you know, Eric, what, you're, what you experienced, given that there were no uh, stipulations in place, for example, or relationships built into um, the court system, for cases such as this, what what are your hopes and what are you seeing in other states or in conversations you've had of what works when there's nothing available? How does that, you know, start to become something that's considered and even become a program where people can request to uh, possibly enter into a, a victim offender dialogue process? starting with pre-conferences and starting with um, hearing the very critical needs um, that the victims have. Well, what's worked so for me so far has been persistence. Um, I'm not a person who just goes away at the first no or the second no or the 11th no. Um, I've been... Uh, for, for a while, I was I was just trying to find the name of someone at the uh, Department of Correction, um, and I was not having any luck. It was just you know, submit a form online or or call the main number. And when when you would explain, all right, this is what happened. This is what I'm trying to do, and you got you know whoever answered the phone at the at the front desk. It's like you were speaking a foreign language um, and, you know, well, you need to, you know, call the individual uh, facility, the prison facility that they're at and speak with so-and-so. Um, and, and I did that um, for a couple of the offenders and that was probably, well, that was at least several months ago and I've never heard back. And so I then started looking at, um, at, at, uh, I went back and watched the episode of the Redemption Project that had a case that was focused on Indiana and I thought, well, well, I'm going to reach out to, to that organization. And, uh, long story short, I, I saw Derek Frank's name, uh, on that episode and I thought, well, if he's done something in Indiana, then maybe he's somebody I can talk to. Um, and so I, I, I was able to find him online, and I gave him a call, explained my story and what I was wanting to do, and and uh, we we made a really good connection. Um, we uh, we spoke at a uh, at a corrections class at IUPUI, which is a university uh, in downtown Indianapolis. We just did that a couple of weeks ago, and he spoke more of the. Uh, academic uh, side of restorative justice, and I spoke about what I'm speaking about with you on the need for a formalized process in the state of Indiana 
Um, I did end up finally getting a hold of somebody, uh, specifically from the Department of Correction. Um, he had heard, uh, he, he had some, some general knowledge of, of the restorative justice theory. Um, and, you know, he said he'd be happy to, to accept a letter from me explaining, you know, a little bit about what happened and what my request was, and, and he would take it to the um, some colleagues of his who uh, could could review it. Um, of course, he said, I can't make any guarantees, but, I mean, just getting to that point took a couple of months um, because there's no, you know, formal department that, that handles that. Um, there is language in the Indiana Code about a victim offender reconciliation program, but within the same section of the Indiana Code, uh, it talks about essentially where available at the county level. Well, there's maybe three counties that even have um, a, a, a center that that is, uh, you know, trained in, in that type of, of theory. And even then, most of it's either juvenile related or lesser offenses related or nonviolent mm-hmm. crime related. Um, mm-hmm. And for instance, in Matt's County, where he lived or where I currently live, uh, there's there's not a there's not there's not a county office for that, or I shouldn't even say a county office. There's not even a nonprofit for that. Um, the centers that I found in Indiana, they're they're generally nonprofit organizations that that uh, work off very little formal funding and, you know, it's, I think mostly um, through donations and, and volunteer work. So have you found it at all helpful to look to other programs such as, um, for example, Pikes Peak uh, has a, a restorative justice program in Colorado Springs, Manitou Springs, and they're doing very active and have been doing very active um, programs for high um, and you know high risk victim offender dialogues relating to murder cases and and very violent crime um, for many years. I think at least over a decade at this point, if not more. And there's also the Ahimsa Collective in um, California who were a part actually of that Redemption Project series in um, featured on, on CNN that we've mentioned tonight, uh, as well as uh, a program called Impact Justice, which is victim-driven, victim-centered, uh, violent crime-oriented restorative justice. So those are just three programs I know, but there are programs that are there that have built relationships within the power structures, you know, within the people who are making the decisions within the courts, um, have allied with them in such a way that it's made it possible to raise awareness um, for the people who are impacted, as well as to build that trust that this isn't just another pipe dream or an unsafe um, process and convincing victims advocates is more about listening I think than it is about telling them that this is something they should do Um, that's a pretty standard approach I think that you're probably taking I'm sure Eric is just listening to what has worked and what is not working and when we see recidivism and um you know that means recrimination, uh, and when when we see things that are reoccurring for the lives of of the people who have been impacted, all of them, not just victims but offenders and their families, the impact and the trauma that continues down the line is very difficult to witness. And I know that it's happening for millions of people in our country whose voices have not been heard. Um, so I'm wondering if could you share with us um, a little bit about what you'd like for people to know, um, especially those who are families of loved ones, murders, um, or violent crime? You know, what would you like to to make known about restorative justice and why you think it's such an important thing for us to be implementing? 
Well, I think that, again, it, that where its focus lies is on helping to try to find some semblance of of healing and understanding, um, you know, from from the flip side of it, from the criminal justice system, you know, whether whether an offender got 50 years or 60 years for the crimes committed against Matt, like to me, it's like, what's, what's the difference? I mean, they're, they're going away for a long, long time. Um, and, and I think there is a need for that. Uh, but you know, it, it, it's not like I go to bed with a smile on my face because somebody else is in prison for a long time. And, and because that was the punishment given to them, that that makes it better. Um, I mean, what's made it better for me um, is just uh, being able to come to an acceptance of, of what happened and, um, you know, and doing these these speeches that I've given at, at churches and universities um, and sharing my story very openly um, and hearing the response I've gotten back from people I have both known personally and people who have come up to me afterwards and share very personal stories about either themselves directly or maybe another family member who had, had gone through um, some violent, uh, horrific crime against them. Um, I mean, it's it's really been uh, rewarding, um, and I've been very humbled that people have, have been willing to share such... Uh, uh, you know, emotional stories with a stranger. I, I think that really cuts through um, any any kind of layer of, um, you know, I don't know. Sometimes people feel shame, shame, or embarrassed that something happened to a loved one, uh, or you know, even like within my own family. Um, like, it's not like some secret we try to hide. I mean, when Matt was killed, uh, obviously the very first day, it was a very busy day. I didn't see my kids until the following day. But my son was, uh, 2016, he was four, and my daughter was seven. And I told them what happened. I mean, I told it, you know, in a, in language they could understand. I didn't get into any gory details. But, you know, this was something that happened to Matt. Um, this wasn't, it wasn't anything like he was involved with the wrong people, you know, that he was um, doing shady things. Uh, this was something that somebody else decided to take upon them, uh, somewhat out of jealousy that, that they were dating uh, that, that Matt was dating his ex-girlfriend um, and and was infatuated with and, and the ex-boyfriend was infatuated with his ex with the Matt's current girlfriend and and I guess decided with Matt out of the picture that he could get back with that with that girl. Um, but I, I just think that with restorative justice as a potential supplement to the criminal justice system. Um, that it, and where people qualify for it, that you know, by by going through the process, that they're not going to get re-traumatized by doing it. Um, and and I'm sure there's there are certain things that happen in that facilitation process that that can, you know, sort of figure that out if that's going to be a risk. But that it really can right. just take a lot of, uh, you know, kind of untie those emotional knots that they may be having. Um, still, I mean, I've just been very fortunate and very blessed that I had, I was given that perspective very early on. I, I know in talking with Derek, uh, he told me about someone he did a facilitation with, um, and I think it was the victim's mother, and she had not been sleeping well for a number of years after the crime happened, and she ended up going through the restorative justice process. And I think he told me it was the night, uh, like after that, that they had done this uh, victim offender dialogue, 
that she said she finally slept well for the first night after uh, several years. And I just mm. think, what a terrible way to uh-huh. go through that extended amount of time to just be going through right. that agony day in and day out. And it appears that restorative justice can address that if it's the wish of the harmed parties. That it, mm-hmm. that restorative justice perhaps has a better opportunity of cultivating conditions of safety and protection, but also openness for victims to share their needs and concerns. And, and also, you know, for the, the, as you're saying, for those who have caused such harm, to be accountable and to also provide the victims through the dialogue some insights that they may not be able to get otherwise. I've, I've heard some extraordinary examples of, of insights that are given in a, in a process, a circle process where, you know, it releases a victim from, from like this nagging feeling of, you know, what happened in that moment like and and something is given to them that they couldn't have received otherwise that releases them and helps them along their journey um now in the present and in the future just like what you were saying about not being able to sleep there's deep psychological trauma and um you know, we all know that happens when we we're, we aren't able to let go of things. They nag at us, and especially if it's such a, the kind of trauma that you and your family endured. Um, and so, it's just very it's very very heartwarming to hear you share that. You know, your own perspective of how this might unfold. Um, aligned even before you learned more about restorative justice and that it's inspiring you to take steps, you know, one step at a time towards having discussions that might lead towards meeting these gaps that we have, um, as you're saying, supplementing the already existing system in a way that um, is healing. And cultivate some yeah, and, and I don't want to a greater stop content. with me. Right. Like, I, I would, I right. would, you know, uh, I, I would be very appreciative of the opportunity to speak with any and all of the offenders. But, um, you know, a system like this isn't just for any one person. Um, it's for the benefit of all. Uh, right. Uh, of, of anyone who would, who would willingly want to participate in such a thing. And so, um, you know, I would like to, you know, at some point meet with some legislators to, to talk about, you know, are you aware uh, that there's this theory out there, uh, you know, share my story, uh, you know, potentially uh, introduce some, some friends of mine who have, who have undergone some pretty terrible things unrelated to Matt's situation, who had some some terrible crimes happen against their families and, and maybe they can mm-hmm. share their stories and, and perhaps restorative justice would be an avenue for them. But to get it formally written into Indiana code that, Hey, uh, that, that it's a, that it's a process available to anyone who's willing to participate and that, you know, maybe even in Indiana, like, like it is in Colorado when, when, um, when something happens to a family that they're given information of, hey, just so you know, here's some information about this other theory. Uh, right. If you'd be interested in participating, here's how you can go about doing that. Um, I, you I think that become, would be wonderful uh, to have. Excuse me. You You could be a lot like what, has already unfolded here in Colorado, and that is um, advocates such as Charletta Evans, whose son was murdered, working directly with Repre- or excuse me, Senator Pete Lee and others who have been um, an integral part in creating a coalition advocating for restorative justice with cross-profession officials, including DAs and legislators and victims of crime, 
and speaking powerfully as you have tonight and as you do in your, your talks and the ones that you're going to be doing now and in the future, the, your presence has impact because you've lived through the unthinkable and you can share your wisdom of how this can be of benefit to people like you. I wish that we could stop altogether the violence that happens in our world and in our country. You and I were in the green room before this call started, and I wondered if you had any specific requests, and you said, peace. (laughs) (laughs) And boy, I, I wish that too. I wish that for all people who have endured any sort of harm and for us to realize um, together the humanizing aspect of um, the fact that we're not, we're never the only thing that the worst thing that we've done. We've ne- we're not the sum of the worst thing that we've done and the needs and perspectives of the people who are involved in harm and conflict. It's essential for that to be safely held and heard. And, um, you know, we're yeah, a little over the hour here points. tonight. Uh, because, Go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I said I'm glad you brought up those points because um, what what you, one thing you just said, I said yesterday at my presentation at Indiana State was that, you know, I know that I can't prevent bad things from happening. I wish I had a magic wand that I could wave and all of a sudden people wouldn't do bad things to other people but I don't have that power. But what I do have the power to do is to try to help put things in place to help make things more manageable uh, for for the people uh, either as victims or as family of victims. Um, there, there was a document that I've created that I've been, uh, I've been working with a, a couple of uh, agencies here in the state of Indiana of just having like a violent crime survivor handbook, just like a pamphlet that gets handed out right at the moment that police are on the scene and giving giving out to a family member of, you know, like a blank form you can fill out of who you spoke with at the scene, you know, what their contact information is, what agency they were with, right. and some notes. Because it's such a jumbled mess going on in your head at the time right. that you have somewhere to take notes that there are maybe some some questions in the pamphlet of things you might want to ask of those officials while you have them, uh, you know, in your presence. And to know so, what, what, what options you would have, of course. Right. And, like what uh, agencies can I talk to uh, about if, if I need to talk to someone about, a you know, grief counseling? Who... Uh, you know, who who do I need to talk to if I don't have Internet access to still be able to have these resources available to me? Um, when will I know more about the case? Like those kinds of questions. Um, and then and then also so Eric, to the larger I, I'm so point. sorry to interrupt. I'm so sorry, but we are over time tonight. And I want to make okay. sure that people that are, are with us and on the uh, as the podcast comes out and drops, know how to reach you and of course on the webcast page which is evergreen if you prefer to come back to this page that you might be on right now looking at um, the recording will be housed there it will also be on the podcast um, stream which is through itunes stitcher spotify as well as for those who might have slower internet access globally we make sure that all the podcasts are housed in a, a a player right on our website, which is restorativejusticeontherise.org. We're run by community, and we are always in appreciation of support from our community to offset the cost of these productions and dialogues. We're so grateful for everyone's participation. And I know this was a a more in-depth and somewhat heavy conversation tonight, but these conversations are what start the ball rolling towards change, towards healing, towards collaboration with everyone involved in this question of justice. And it's been an honor, Eric, to host you tonight. And I know we had a lot to cover. I hope that we can get you back for a panel, possibly with some of the corrections officials that are working here in Colorado, as well as a possible judge and um, other people who've been impacted. 
Do you have any quick closing thoughts? We're five after the hour, and we need to wrap it up. So I'd love to just um, give you a chance to have some closing remarks. Uh, to your point a moment ago, I, I feel like when we can pre present ourselves uh, from – or not prevent or present, but present ourselves from proclaiming offenders as monsters, you know, I think we can allow them to retain a sense of humanity – and when we can speak as humane partners and instead of an us versus them mindset, that we can then have serious dialogue on very complicated and complex topics. And when we have dialogue, we can foster understanding to present potential solutions and hopefully invoke change uh, both through interpersonal relationships and uh, eventually through proper uh, systematic government governmental channels. Mm. So well said. Thank you so much, Eric. Eric Luking, blessed for another day, all one word, dot com. There's contact information there as well as extraordinary T-shirts for sale that support his work. He is available to speak at your campus, in your community, um, to share his story. He has a wonderful presentation that's very specific to the need for restorative justice. And I'm looking forward to having you back, Eric, in the near future on that panel I mentioned. And again, gratitude, heartfelt gratitude to our listenership, our community, which is global in scope and for the last almost 10 years. Thank you, everybody and have a beautiful rest of your evening. We hope to see you again soon. In the near future, we're going to be talking with the people that are featured in the documentary, award-winning documentary, The Prison Within. So please stay posted with us. And Eric, thank you. Good night, everyone. Thank you, Molly.